Jose Galison, you're watching No Way Jose. Find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters in Odyssey as well. Today, my guest today will be Kyle Serafin. We'll be all over the place. It'll be an interesting talk. Uh, I mean, I know you guys, if you can follow my channel, you know I kind of got big into the OKC stuff. And one of the main villains of that story is the FBI. And so I have a, a certified FBI whistleblower with us today. So it'll be interesting to see which ways this conversation goes. But I do want to remind you guys how this works. Uh, this is a, one of those paywalled type things. Maybe I'll bring, have them come back for a Four Pony Boys someday since those aren't paywalled. Uh, but the way this works is these get recorded and roughly, you know, a week or so ish later they go up depending on what my schedule is looking like. Uh, but if you want to be able to get those uh, episodes early, you can go to patreon.com. No way Jose 2020. Uh, lowest level is two bucks. That gives you access to that. Highest level is 20. 20 is my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikkel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Also, Jeremy is an Etsy store at Etsy.com. So shop slash Raising Liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. And my co-host of Tower Gang, Toad. Uh, you obviously you can go check out the Tower Gang podcast as my offensive comedy podcast. So warning if you don't like offensive comedy, uh, you can follow him at Tower Gang Toad. Uh, also Zach Overacker at Z O V E R A C K on Twitter, and then Mike Dagalash, and then Lindsay or that Hangry Hangry with an H Mama on TikTok. She's been covering a lot of the OKC type, um, you know, TikTok type stuff on there. But I am not really don't have the. I don't have the interest in doing that TikTok stuff, so I'm glad someone's doing it. That is a for, uh, platform that needs to be hit with that, and she seems to be doing a good job, and I appreciate her doing that and her support here. But I do also want to remind you guys, you can get that Yiki shirt at toplobster.com. The Yiki didn't, Terrence Yiki didn't kill himself. I do, I don't think I've announced this yet, but my uh, Kenneth Trenadu didn't kill himself article just dropped over at the garrison magazine the history of uh, deep politics uh, or of history and deep politics uh, the journal of history and deep politics i said that wrong but uh yeah I'll, I'll try to put that link in here that we can go get it i'm looking forward to seeing my work in a magazine pretty awesome uh, first place really ever getting published other than like self-publishing type stuff so uh fun stuff with that let's go ahead and get kyle in here hey what's up kyle how you doing hey how's it going Jose? It's pleasure having you here. Like I told you, maybe the audience is picking up too. I have a little bit more rushed, anxious energy today. I'm quitting smoking, and I've been using uh, caffeine to help me quit uh, with those little little pouches, things, little grinds, uh, the coffee grinds or whatever. So uh, it's getting me through it. I've been doing pretty good. But uh, if you feel a little anxious energy that you're not used to in the channel, that's why, guys. Just letting you know. But I'm glad having you here. Uh, I've been looking. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Uh, I found you to be an interesting fella. Uh, with your backstory and then also we have like weirdly a lot in common i've listened to your backstory a few times now uh you're like me if i guess if i went down similar path like 10 years later because you're a little bit older than me i'm not trying to tell on your age but uh you know you can I'm, tell uh, my age i'm 41 <laughs> i own every one of it i got gray hairs i earned every one of those damn things too yeah i'm 31 i did uh, 11 years active duty in the air force i uh, I have two, I have a 13 year old and a 10 year old. I, I was a dropout from Sear. I normally don't tell the, the, the ones I went to, but I dropped, I was a dropout from Sear. 
uh but i normally don't just because it's one of those things like seer is ones that like i tell people it's like kind of special forces but it's not because you're trying to tell someone on the outside what it is they're like like they a don't know instructor they don't know what the hell you're talking about it's technically nope. not so it's like but the rec the recidivism still out rate of the 342nd is, man <laughs> yeah but the recidivism rate is like literally no one in my class made it through the entire pipeline so yeah the checks <laughs> so like it's like it's still pretty hard but when you're like well technically not we're just a survival instructor and they're like oh that's some bullshit and you're like okay <laughs> well grand thumb did that for a while too didn't he uh, I don't know. I've never was a big grand thumb guy, but it sounds like that would make sense. I'm almost positive he was, and I'm and I may have trained with him at some point in time because I'm fairly confident he looks he looks like a bunch of dudes I know. Um and and they kind of have that attitude. The seer instructor guys that are in the Air Force are kind of a weird bunch, like in a likable way for me. They've got uh some real interesting who was a dude, what was his name? Cameron, uh something Cameron. He probably would have been through so I went through 10 years ago, which would have been in the same. Well, actually, I went through 13 years ago. So we were probably in the same space at the same time. What years were you? Did you start uh, off? I joined the military in July of 2010, I think, active duty Air Force. So Okay. And so I you went were at. Through, it went, I went through SEER training. I failed out, like I said, and ended up getting. Uh, they made me into a fucking grunt, a crew chief. So I just was a, or, or, you know, knuckle dragon. A wrench turner after that but uh yeah uh that checks out so you were at, but you were at medina 2010 mid 2010 i was at lackland the entire time well, lackland, same same yeah, idea I got yeah. to the end of selection failed out at the end i fell asleep when i was supposed to be uh taking care of my uh tools yeah of course so stupid it's <laughs> such had, a like... dumb thing sleep depot is the dumbest thing that they do <laughs> yeah well it's funny because people are always like i'll tell them like i guess technically it was the food and the sleep deprivation that got me but it's like they don't technically say you can't eat and you can't sleep. They just give you a million tasks to do. And there's no way you're going to get like eat and sleep right. and do everything. So you're like, it's a time management uh, disaster is basically what they're doing to you. And it's like, you got to feel, learn how to manage your time and not be a complete and utter wreck at the same time. No, you're going to be a wreck. There's, yeah. there's, I mean, the longer you're up, the, the, the more combat inefficient you are. That's a, that's a known fact. So they do the, uh, the pararescue program, which is one of the two that I went through, they do a, what's called extended training day. So it starts and then you don't know when it's going to end and it could end in two days and it could end in a week and it never ends in a week because people would die. But, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're out there doing just dumb things. And after about 24 hours, and it might be even less than 24 hours, they cut off some of the really dangerous stuff that they would do in the water because people would die. And so yeah. it gets like, it gets kind of like no harassment. And the only harassment is that you're underwater and you're swimming around, you're doing breath holds and stuff, but they put, you know, glow sticks on you. So you, if you go under, they can find you because <laughs> if people go under, they don't go back up uh, yeah. when, when they haven't slept, they make weird decisions and go meet the wizard and, and they refuse to come back out. So yeah, that's always... I've heard a lot of horror stories from the PJ guys because I mean, Man, when you're there, especially the when you most fail fun. out and you're, you're waiting, because you said you kind of, I think you injured it, you got basically got injured out, if I remember correctly, from your backstory. Uh, so, or so I went all the way through yeah. the combat control pipeline. Yep. Okay, so I graduated selection, I graduated the operator course, I graduated air and seerborne, uh, seer and airborne. I just did those together, that was funny. Um, and then I went on to the apprentice course, which was at Fort Bragg, it was actually at Pope Air Force Base back when it was an Air Force Base, now it's an airfield. And, uh, and I went through that and I was about halfway through the apprentice course to finish that, that training and put on the red hat. And, uh, and then I got very, very sick in the field, you know, 106 degrees. It was a heat stroke injury combined with just probably had like the flu or something, but yeah, I was, you know, puking, um, incontinent, uh, what do you call it? Rhabdomyolysis, like complete failure, like just body fell apart. And so when I came back to, to Lackland, uh, after 17, 18 months of training, they go like, you can have any job you want, but you can't have this one. And I went, oh, okay, well, send me to PJ and Doc. And they're like, that's kind of like swimming upstream, right? And I, I go, mm. 
So they go, well, you got to sign like a pledge and say, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to quit and some other things. And so I agreed to that. And I got a colonel to sign off and send me up the chain. And so then I went to pararescue in doc, graduated from that in uh, 11, uh, 2011. So that was uh, 11 balls too. It was cold as all get out. It was uh, January, February, March, and maybe the beginning of April class, something like that. And then uh, I went on to combat dive and I graduated from that. And then I went through the medical program and then I was just basically waiting around for a halo spot, uh, yeah. which never, which never materialized. So it was literally a, um, it was a trade off failure, if you will, or a, a AETC failure to be able to get me a slot. And I was 31 years old and I was sick of having a 19 year old roommate and that was all dumb. And I was sick of having a kid, you know, who had a 19% interest rate on a Jeep living next to me and he wouldn't buy toilet paper because he had no money. And it's like, what the hell am I doing with my life? If I'm not going to deploy, we're not going to go do this job and then I'm done. So I ended up uh, just walking out on my own two feet in between training classes, just let them know I was done with it, uh, yeah. which is frustrating. But in many ways, it prepared me for some of the insanity that I've dealt with. I guess that's kind of a good backstory, but yeah, that's it, it prepared me and mentally and physically to kind of get into the, the insanity of the FBI. So when they came at me, I was like, what are you guys at? You're going to take my paycheck. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, then what? No, it's funny. I, 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 it sounds like you just like almost left almost immediately. We had a weird situation where a lot of us would, we would stick around and then we'd wait till they recycled us to whatever, you know, different training they want us to go to. And well, there was uh, a lot of, yeah, there was a lot yeah. of downtime. <laughs> also they arrested me. Um, when I, when I, uh, left the, the PJ program, which was, you know, 30, 39 or 40 months into my uh, 48, they, uh, they had me arrested a couple of days later just to piss me off, just to screw with me. And they, uh, they threw me in a jail cell overnight and they alleged that I was being erratic and dangerous, which was really funny to me. Cause like, there's not a lot of dudes in the FBI who are FBI agents who have spent a night in jail. <laughs> it just doesn't usually work out that way. So I had a lot of empathy for people that, uh, maybe other people didn't uh, doing that job, but yeah, sitting around and pushing a broom for six months—that was an experience. I, I've I've shared that with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I feel you there. That uh, honestly, those were some of the most fun times, just when we really didn't have much to do. And you said to make make yourself look busy, uh, but yeah, I don't blame you at all for getting out as thirty-one. It would have been a nightmare with the way it works, the way they inf infant in infantilize, 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 infantilize people. Like, yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, but uh, I guess we can kind of skip forward to why you're most known these days. It's not for the military stuff we've been talking about. It's for the FBI stuff, which you, I guess, kind of, you know, went right from military to FBI, uh, you know, kind of went from one to the other. Uh, I guess you did a little bit of school before. So I think that's kind of what gave you a little bit more qualifications uh, prior to the military, if I remember correctly. Because, uh, I mean, it is kind of weird to go straight from being, uh, you know, an enlisted grunt to FBI. But the uh, school backing, I guess, the, the having a degree probably made you a little bit more appealing recruit. Uh, but I guess we could kind of start there and work into why the hell uh, people know you now as a whistleblower and uh, kind of how that worked out. Yeah. So quick and dirty. Uh, yeah. I went to school when I got out of uh, high school, I went to college, graduated, kind of bummed around. I sold computers for a while. I sold uh, ergonomic office furniture. I ran a restaurant. I did finance for a movie studio, like you name it, weird stuff. That was what I did. Uh, enlisted at 27, did the the three and a half years or so of that before they let me leave a little bit early on my, my four years because I had no retainability. And then I went back to school for a year, thought I was going to go be a doctor or like maybe a, uh, maybe a PA because I'd worked in an emergency room. And I worked on a, uh, an ambulance for a little bit. I was a paramedic. I'm still a paramedic, actually. Um, so I did so all this kind of weird things. And then I threw in a package for the FBI, not knowing that it was ever going to get picked up. But 18 months or so later, I ended up uh, getting the interview and getting the job offer, sat around uh, for a few months just doing PT, and then shipped off in June of 2016 to go to the academy at 35 years old. 
And so when all my classmates kind of went around the, you know, and said what their background was, we were supposed to say what our last job was, uh, what our educational background was. And then I can't remember like where we were from, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, like I'm Kyle Serafin. I'm from Austin, Texas. Um, you know, my last job, I was a stay at home dad, but I didn't have any kids. And, uh, I went to the university of Oklahoma, not very exciting. And so I kind of sit down there's everyone else was like trying to big dog it. You know, they were like, Oh, I used to work for the CIA or like I was a bureau chief for the Washington post down at Bogota and all this other stuff. And it's like, no, I'm going to go the other way. Uh, and we'll see what it is. End of the day. Um, I was pretty unimpressed with the FBI right when I walked in the door. It's not like walking into the military. Everyone thinks it's going to be paramilitary and aggressive and there's going to be some toughness. Um, you know, there was a fat black lady handing me a folder and, you know, that was kind of like my introduction to standard government work. And uh, they said, we'll see you in a couple hours, like go wander around like make yourself at home. And I'm looking around for someone to punch me. I wore like a smokable suit because I assumed that I was just going to get just crushed. And uh, that didn't happen. Yeah, so it, 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 real quick, I do. I want to remark it is just. I can, it never gets old, the perception versus reality of people who don't understand it. I mean, whether it's military or fed stuff, like, uh, this is a point, I guess it's kind of an anecdote. I don't really, and this isn't to throw any shade at Pasobic or anything, but I got an argument with someone online where they're going on about how, what a decorated individual he was and how great he was. And I was like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, but like, I kind of looked at his record and it's like, he was an O2 with like six years in the reserves of like Navy Intel. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess technically he could be doing some Jack Reacher shit, but I highly doubt it. I feel like he was most likely just a guy at a computer. Like, yep. let's be yeah. real. Intel, and, and Intel <laughs> doesn't blow my hair back. There's some operational <laughs> Intel guys that are doing some stuff downrange, and I know them. And uh, you know, and when you know them, you know what they did. But that is definitely not the default position for Intel. Yes. The default position is sitting in a dark room looking at computer screens. Yes, which is so. a, the in my interaction with every Intel person I ever met in the military is they were mostly just desk nerds. Not to to throw any slight their yep. way. I mean, I'm sure there was probably some sort of skill involved in whatever the hell they did, but for sure. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I know it was just clickety click, click, email this, analyze that. Click. Some click, of them click. are yoked. That's the other thing. Cause <laughs> yeah. some of them are just bored out of their gourd and they went and they took out all their frustrations, like in a gym afterwards. So I'm not mad at them. I, you know, it's a different skill set. Everybody needs all the skills. That's why they're there. You need support to be able to do it. Same thing for the FBI, you know, to throw, uh, to throw those people into the bus and say they're not useful, I think is wrong, but to act like they're a bunch of door kicking killers, not the case. And that does, okay. that's not to mean there aren't door kicking killers. I mean, a lot of people know, like, with all my OKC coverage, I think uh, to look at any entity as some sort of monolith is a little bit silly. So when you start, start saying, like, oh, well, this individual did this and this individual did that, and oh, Operation Northwoods or MK Ultra, then you're like, people are like, what do you think? They all do this? No. Like, I think the majority of them are just people. I mean, we're probably talking maybe a dozen, couple dozen people here and there working on you know, stuff that the vast majority of whatever entity we're talking about know nothing about and are usually being kept in the dark just as much as we are and manipulated too. So, you yep. know, which I'm sure they do with field agents all the time. And I'm sure you can speak to that, but yeah, on. it's very compartmentalized. So long yeah. and short, you know, like I said, un uninteresting first week, they call it the one week where they just teach you how to be a government employee. I found it to be pretty obnoxious. I thought it was pretty weak. Um, I, I did find my tribe. There was a couple of dudes there that were like in my little world. I get a buddy that, uh, you know, used to work for CIA's maritime branch. He was an interesting dude and uh, kind of kind of got to know him over the period of the time. You know, you kind of stake out who your friends are going to be. I had a, a meathead buddy who, uh, you know, I looked at him and um, he was about six, one and two seventy five, and about, you know, 6% body fat. Cause he's just a sick freak. And, uh, and he didn't look like he belonged there. So, you know, I, I just treated him really aggressively and I was like, what are you looking at? You fat fucker, you know, and like that kind of thing. And, and then he gave me a big hug and he was like, what are we doing here? So there was some of that. Uh, one of my buddies that I've, I still keep in touch with pretty much every day was a smoke jumper in the forest service. So also pretty, pretty aggressive outdoor dog went through some really 
aggressive selections and things like that. So I did have a tribe of people that I ran with. There was also a lot of people whose names I can't remember. And if I saw them, I would probably recognize that I knew them, but I don't care. And, uh, and they don't care either. They probably think I betrayed their class. So good for them. Um, all that leads me to say is that, uh, six months of there, it was the easiest Academy I've ever done. It's the easiest, uh, six months I've ever done anywhere. I slept nine hours a day. I had three round meals. Um, I passed every test. I never studied for anything. I didn't find it to be particularly difficult. I'm pretty bright guy. I do well on tests, but, um, it wasn't some elite, you know, th there's all this like mythology about how it's like, the, they're teaching you like upper level psychology. It's like, no, it's like basic street cop, uh, constitutional law, and then some basic FBI policy. And then a lot of nothing, just a lot of just taking, I could have done that Academy in two months or less. And it would have been equally good. And most of it would have just been doing whatever their tactics were and making sure that the, those were sound and the shooting was good. So I get out, I get assigned to the Washington field office, which was uh, basically the worst decision that anybody could have in America to go work there. And the second worst would be probably New York, but uh, at least you're not right next to headquarters. So I was next to headquarters. Um, the, the offices in judiciary square did two years assigned to a counterintelligence squad working on the Chinese. And I covered non embassy related non-criminal matters, Chinese counterintelligence that were not based in the United States. So it was like FISA, awful FISA, uh, just staring at it. So that was bad. I tried to get out of it as soon as I could. They told me I had to stick around. I basically ended up having to threaten my way out by exposing my boss for being a sort of useless and breaking federal employment law and some things that she had asked me to do. So they let me go to what they considered to be career suicide uh, what the most fun that I had, which was working for a surveillance team and, uh, it's called the special operations group, but it should be called the special observations group in more reality. And we do surveillance eight hours a day. So I did that for three straight years. I saw a little bit of everything. I saw white collar cases. I saw, uh, criminal gangs. I saw, you know, child sex trafficking. I saw jihadis, uh, so-called white supremacists. As, and I say that just because there's just not really a big threat there. And we can talk about that as much as you want. And uh, a little bit of everything. And we were specifically tasked to take on counterterrorism cases as they came up. That was the priority. And then we did all the other work as well. So a lot of, a lot of sitting in cars and thinking and watching. You get really good at hunting people, which I, I thought was the fun part. It's you got to keep yourself sharp for eight straight hours, you know, sticking around. And then when you start getting mobile, that's when it gets spicy. And I've done, you know, 125 miles an hour on surface streets and slid, you know, sideways through intersections and done all the insane things you can imagine. Sometimes when I see people driving really crazy, I think that's maybe a surveillance operator and he's not, he's not just being a dick. And so maybe people could put that in their head. Um, I've, I've done 90 miles an hour through a red light, you know, in front of a cop and, and they don't even know what to do with you. They just leave you. They just go like, uh, what the hell was that? Uh, and we're, and we're in like minivans, you know, we're in like a Toyota Tracel or a Camry, you know, we're in an Accord, we're in a Jeep. We're not in government looking vehicles at all. Yeah. And so, uh, when that was a lot of fun and then I was, you know, five years in DC is five years too many. So I put in for a voluntary transfer to go to New Mexico, uh, went out there thinking I was getting away from everything, got assigned to an Indian reservation. I was living the dream. My office was a hundred miles away from where my work site was. And I basically covered down on major crimes. So sex, sexual assault, um, domestic batteries, uh, suicides, death investigations, big traffic accidents, if they happened, arson, things like that. So that's what I was going to go do. I did that for a couple months and I had a, I had a pretty good time with it. Did a couple of uh, death investigations that I got to put my you know, my boots through some awfulness. And then, and then two things happened at the same time. Uh, September 21, 
we get this uh, order from this executive order from Biden, it's 14043, saying that all federal employees have to get a COVID vaccine shot. I said, no, thank you. I'm a pro-life Catholic. That wasn't going to be the case. So I went ahead and just told him that wasn't happening. You know, do whatever you want. And then about three to four weeks later, I got an email from one of my colleagues stating that the FBI was going to be you know, investigating parents at school board meetings under a new threat tag known as EDO officials. And uh, that's kind of like a hashtag that that keys in on parts of investigations so that you can go back and look for it. And by doing that, I realized that we were not just it wasn't so much that we were going to be looking into parents. There's a possibility that that could be FBI's jurisdiction. The problem was, is that it was coming from the assistant director of the counterterrorism group, um, whose name is Carlton Peoples and probably has retired since then. But when he sent that out, it looked like the attorney general had lied in front of Congress, stating that we weren't going to use Patriot Act tools and counterterrorism resources against parents. So when that happened, I went to Congress. That was my first whistleblowing activity. Turns out that was probably the end of my bureau career right there. And then uh, I got AWOL, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, I got AWOL for about uh, 10 to 12 weeks, something to that effect, no pay. Uh, that was kind of not very cool. I got kicked out of the office in November of 21. I didn't get to come back until March of 22. And then I was there for six weeks before they pulled my badge and my gun and walked me out, took my body armor and my vehicle. And that was the last time I stepped foot into a FBI office, April 18th of 22. So since then, I've gone full bore. Uh, a lot of people get quiet. They get crushed. They hope that there's going to be some legal solution. And uh, I knew that was not going to be the case. So my move was the opposite of that. I got very loud. I exposed uh, you know, a number of things, including showing that the Betsy Ross symbol was one of the militia violent extremist uh, tags and the symbols guide. You know, you probably have some tattoos on your bodies that would identify in the same sort of signals guide. And so being a, a law enforcement guy and, and being a vet, it's like uh, all my friends have all this stuff. And, you, you know, that's either on their body, their T-shirt or hanging up on a flag in their gym. And I'm not OK with that. So that was, yeah. you know, number two and did some other stuff, talked to Project Veritas, ended up exposing, you know, this thing about radical traditional Catholics, how the FBI was going to be investigating churches. And now we've gone full bore into First Amendment protected activities and uh, and all of it is fair game. So that's the that's the fastest version I can spit out of most of the important stuff. And uh, I'm happy to kind of field all the questions you can think of. But um, it's yep. a terrible organization, unfortunately, and <laughs> and it's not getting any better. Yeah, there was a we could we could talk about a lot. I mean, but there was multiple things you went on there. I could easily go on a on little little rabbit trails on and talk about for at least twenty plus minutes for each little one. Uh, I did want to kind of another remark about the DVEs. You kind of pointed out with the Betsy Ross stuff that it was like that was one of the creepiest things that came when that stuff was coming out. That was like probably. If I remember correctly, that was like peaks COVID censorship, especially around like on the Facebook realm around that time. And it was it was a lot of that came out for me in my uh, looking into the Duncan Lemp stuff, which I'm, I don't know if maybe you're familiar with that name and not at all. Uh, he's kind of tangentially connected. I know I know you just did an episode on Brianna Taylor Taylor. Uh, he his story kind of got overshadowed by that and that and he was a white guy. Uh, so it didn't have that angle to it. Got it. uh, it's a good story. I like just go checking out. But anyways, like one of the things they brought up because he was kind of loosely tied into like Boogaloo stuff. Okay. Uh, Duncan Lemp, you know, which I'm sure you maybe, maybe I have heard his name. I, yeah. yeah. If you gave me enough backstory, I knew I, I know the Boog story. I know, yeah. you know, my buddy and I always, he goes, Hey man, when's the, when's the big igloo? Yeah. I go, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we think it's funny because so feds are so nerdy about all this stuff yeah. and they, and they just don't get it. Um, they're not regular dudes. And so when they're not regular dudes, then things that are silly, 
make them squirrely and things that should make them squirrely, they don't know to even be worried about. So Yes. And um, that was uh, with Duncan Lamp. That was a, one of the, one of the many things that came out with those DVE leaks or whatever, uh, where they're like different symbols is like stuff related to him. And then the Betsy Ross and 1776. And, but it, 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 especially when you know Duncan's story and that like, Hey, this was a guy that got you like the whole crux of the story is that he got murdered by the state. And then to be like, oh, you guys, you know, shouting his name in solidarity is somehow like your domestic violent extremist is like, oh, okay, but what's the context behind this? We're saying that you guys right. are the bad guys. Well, like, it's, just, it's the same I thing mean, with the, yeah, it's the same thing with Ashley Babbitt. You know, that yeah. claiming that she's a martyr, um, which people do. And there's some pros and cons to making that argument. I think we can reasonable people could disagree about it or agree with it as they want. To I make the idea that that would indicate that you're a violent extremist on the FBI's radar is it's such an indoor dog thing. It's the clickety clack types that sit behind a computer and have never met people. I mean, that's the other scary thing. You meet these, these folks and many of them have never, you know, they're, they're terrible at interviews. They're really weird to take places when they come out of the Academy. They're, they're useless. They can't have an interview with a regular person. You take them out there and they just creep people out because they say strange stuff that doesn't mean anything. I, I had a, a kid come out of the Academy. I say kid, he was an army vet. He was a good dude, but uh, just, inexperienced. And I used to do the same thing with everybody. Cause when I'm a paramedic, we role play everything. Like if medicine comes up, the only way that we know how to treat medicine is that you have to have the experience of practicing. So, you know, I go up and I'd be like, Hey, Jose, you're like a 36 year old female and you have abdominal pains and I'm going to come up there and assess you. And you go, oh, okay. And then, then we do it and we just play so that we can get used to saying things. It's like, how you doing, ma'am? Even though I'm looking at you. Right. And so I just go, I go, Hey man, just uh, interview me real quick before we go outside. I don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> and he's like, well, what do we do? I go, knock, knock. Hello. What are you doing on my doorstep? Your turn. And he was like, oh, you know, hey, like, uh, you know, I'm agent so-and-so. I'm with the FBI. And I go, congratulations. And he was like, um, yeah. Uh, I was like, you must be very proud. And he was like, uh, yeah. You know, and like, they don't know what to do. It's like, I'm just going to screw with you because I want you to get a gentle idea of what hostility looks like. And he's like, well, so, uh, you know, your name came across my desk. And I'm like, my name came across your desk. What do you have, like a conveyor belt? It's like one of those tickers, like at Wall Street. Like, oh, like, how did my name come across your desk? What does that mean? And he was like, um, can we time out? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I don't really know what that means. I'm like, why'd you say it, dude? <laughs> like, why do you say things that don't have meanings? Just say, I was asked to come talk to you by my supervisor. Here's what I'm here for. How about you just be honest? That's really easy. And then people will know you're being honest. And then they'll choose to talk to you or not. Like, if they tell you to pound sand, then you just close the door and leave. That's fine. Yeah. And, and, and they don't get it. Yeah, but it, that's, it, it is funny with the DVE thing and, and just other certain things that are said by people in power. It is it's like it's like kind of true. I guess it's a Michael Malice line, like factual but not truthful thing. It's because the idea is like to them in a certain to some people, we are the domestic violent extremists, people that have similar ideas that if you do think, uh, you know, it was an act of aggression by the state to take up uh, Ashley Babbitt or or uh, Duncan Lamp or whatever. To in their eyes, it is kind of, to some people, it is like, well, that is an enemy. It's kind of like when people say, especially you'll hear this a lot in foreign policy, it's like the uh, the interests of the state or the interests of us or whatever. And it's like, who is us? Who is the state? Who are you talking about? Like, right. is this who's in, is in, in the apparatus that is the state, or do you mean this is in the, the better interests of the people? Because these are right. two distinct uh, things. And that I think that also applies a lot of times with things like DVEs or and how they refer to these. Like, in a certain sense, it's like, okay, well, if you put yourself in their frame of mind and what this apparatus and incentives they have in place, what is, 
uh, in their interest. And it's like, well, it makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if that's something, a realization you've come as you've kind of it, slipped it's, away. From it's the seriously thing. dangerous because one yeah. of the things that, that, you know, DVE is, is a broad category, domestic violent extremists. So there are many categories, subcategories underneath it. And, and the ones that are out there right now, first of all, they're all people that are generally lean conservative and, uh, you know, in any kind of flavor. And so you've got things like anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists, which is like the people who think the founding fathers were great and didn't really want to be taxed and think that the federal government should be pretty limited. So if you're willing to be someone who says that you don't necessarily agree with the way the state operates, that makes you a A-G-A-A-V-E, agave with two A's in the middle of it. That's weird. Um, pro-life violent extremists. Now I'm a little older than you. So I remember that there were some shootings in the nineties where people were like shooting and trying to blow up abortion clinics and stuff. But generally speaking in the last 20 something years, it's very, very difficult to find violence against abortion clinics. So that's not really a thing, uh, but, but it's a category nonetheless. And then they've got other stuff. Like I said, militia violent extremists, that's going to be the people that, uh, that have the flag like me behind there that may own guns and you know, think the government should leave them alone and may want a, a forced reset trigger or a pistol brace because they just feel like, you know, screw you. It's my damn rights. And because it is their rights, because it says it in the Constitution pretty clearly that they shouldn't be infringed. So, you know, if you start holding on to like I, I put constitutional extremists in my Twitter bio because I just think it's funny. It's like it just I just believe in the oath that I swore. I've sworn it both as a civilian and in the military. So how about that? How about you just let me be an extremist about the thing that I said I would be honest about, which I am. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Uh, I did. I'd be remiss if I didn't get your opinion. It was a bit of a heel turn here uh, on the Durham report stuff. I mean, I feel mm -hmm. like this is right up your alley. I'll be completely honest. I haven't been paying attention at all. I have a vague idea even what the uh, what the Durham report is. Uh, I, but this is like one of those things where I go through periods of time where I t obsess over things. But there was a period of time where this larger narrative I was obsessed with. So I'm like familiar with a lot of this. But it seems to be the Durham report just kind of the dirty deeds have come to light a little bit. We're getting a little bit of a spin that it still was like, well, it wasn't that bad. Oh, you know, well, no, we, it was we pretty bad. Well. <laughs> no, no, it was bad. So uh, imagine this, like the Mueller report was basically, we hate Trump. We think he's terrible. And so we're going to go out there and investigate him and spend $20 million with a bunch of partisan lawyers. And the end result was, we really still think he's really, really bad, but uh, we don't have anything we can indict him with. And the Durham report was sort of the opposite. It was like, here's a bunch of indictable crimes that we're not going to indict. Uh, and the FBI is terrible. And they should have fixed something and they didn't. Uh, but we're still not going to go after them. So they're bookends, but I think they're almost like they're the mirror of each other as far as like the seriousness. Because there's just no, you know, they had a couple of really weak indictments where they went after uh, uh, Ivan, Por uh, what's his name? Um, no, I can't think of it. Uh, Deporshenko, whatever his name is. Oh, and he was, about, so at the end of the day, like they went after a couple of these things. They went after Michael Sussman and, and, it, and they didn't get it because they did it in DC. So that was going to be ineffective. Um, if you'll, if you'll bear with me and bear my eyes looking upward, I've got a screen above me. And what I did is I, I cut out the things that I thought were the most sort of damning pieces. And these are just quick little grabs. So you can kind of digest the, um, the Durham report is as follows. There's a whole bunch to it. It's 360. If you want to bring pages. anything up, you can share screen if you know how to on, on this, but if not, we can, well, I'll just read it. it to you. Cause it's, yeah. it's not even worth uh, sharing it. This is just right off my Twitter feed, which people can find. It's just, you know, my handles underneath there if they want to go look for it. But, uh, and this is from May 15th when it was dropped, but essentially it says this. So for your sort of edification, the speed and manner in which the FBI opened and investigated crossfire hurricane, which was the counterintelligence investigation into Trump, no criminal allegation, by the way, just intelligence. Uh, reflected a noticeable departure from how it approached manners prior to involving 
uh, possible attempted foreign election interference plans aimed at the Clinton Foundation. So the Clinton campaign had done something and then there was a, a marked difference in the way they treated Trump. That's part one. I think it's a damning indictment. It says, and in a third investigation, the Clinton Foundation matter. So there were multiple investigations into the Clinton Foundation for their, their wrongdoings. Both senior FBI and department officials from DOJ placed restrictions on how those matters were to be handled such as essentially no investigative activities occurring for months leading up to the election. They hit the brakes on all the Clinton investigations. They went full speed into Trump's investigations. That's worth knowing. It's just not the way that things were treated on the other end. And then it says Crossfire Hurricane was markedly different from the FBI's actions with respect to other highly significant intelligence, uh, pointing to a Clinton campaign plan to vilify Trump by tying him to Vladimir Putin so as to divert attention from her use of a private email server. And then the last little piece here, which is the two sort of villains of the story, if you will, uh, Deputy Director Andy McCabe, the other one was a Deputy Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, Peter Strzok. Both of them are scumbags, and uh, both of them have defamed the FBI in a big way. It says, at the direction of DD Andy McCabe and DAD for Counterintelligence, Peter Strzok, opening Crossfire Hurricane immediately, Strzok had pronounced hostile feelings towards Trump. The matter was opened as a full investigation without in identifying the subsource that was making the allegations. They basically got some intel from from an uh, Australian source and without even interviewing that Australian source and actually verifying that there was even any credibility to it, they opened a full investigation, which is a total no-no. So the FBI said, hey, we fixed all the things. I was there when they fixed all the things. They basically put out a bunch of PowerPoints. We call them virtual academy. Um, you, I can't remember if we had virtual academy in the military or not, but it's the same idea. It's the you same sit, idea. Something yeah, bad happens. And, we'll send out an email. Maybe give you a new computer-based training of some sort. That's it. That that's you click, exactly click, it. click, click. Maybe we'll make it annoying so you actually have to go to Google and type in the qu specific questions for the test. But at the end of the day, it's a joke training thing. That's like, it. And that's what they did. <laughs> that was the solution. And the real solution is this. Uh, don't have people that are going to engage in adultery and um, you know that are going to betray their spouse in charge of seriously sensitive counterintelligence matters, take people who are actually people who are going to abide by the oath. You know, at the end of the day, Peter Strzok was, uh, you know, banging a, another attorney that was working for the FBI. So he was betraying his wife. He, you know, what, what, what would he care about betraying the country? And he's making like little love stories to her. Yeah, we're going to get him baby and all this kind of stuff. So she's, uh, he's doing that thing. And then, you know, Andy McCabe's wife was receiving money from the, the Clinton cutouts through Peter. Uh, What's his name? Not Peter McAuliffe. The other McAuliffe. Um, shoot. Yeah. Terry McAuliffe, who was yeah. the, the Virginia uh, governor and former governor. Anyway, long, long and short of it is a lot of dirty dealings by the FBI. No culpability. Nobody's going to be held accountable. It, it matters only that it vindicates President Trump's statement that it was all a big hoax, which it was. There was no actionable, credible, acceptable intelligence. They were outside of policy on all of it. And they ran down a sitting president and they've run a psyop on us or you know an information war for seven years yeah it's it's pretty nuts like when you would most of this stuff is stuff that was basically almost readily available information damn near from the jump uh at least the basics maybe some of the specifics like names and specific events you like maybe you had to wait a little bit for a lot of this stuff but pretty much everything you just said there is information that's been available for probably well over six months to a year and so oh, it's, it, it's been yeah years yeah, so the devin years. nunez yeah the, the nunez memo came yeah. out years ago and so people like cash patel have been saying this devin nunez who was uh formerly on the uh the intel committee uh former congressman yeah all this stuff has been in the public sphere they haven't had like a nice 300 page report so that's what this did it sewed yeah. everything up it told it in a big long form narrative with all the appendices that you need and all that but you know it's not news to anybody who's been paying attention Yes, exactly. And it's like kind of this weird, I don't know if I want to call it a masterclass, but it's at least a 
great example of limited hangouts and the, the whole concept behind it between, uh, well, okay, clearly the narrative is slipping away from us. So we'll, once the narrative has slipped away a certain way, we'll stake our line in the, in the sand right here. And it's like, we slowly back off towards like, Oh, well, it's, it's not so bad. It's a, uh, I mean, hell you, you, we see it all the time where we'll, we'll, we'll back off from one narrative uh, and, and slightly be like, okay, well, we'll give you a little bit of this, but we won't give you that. And it's just over time where you get to a point where it's like, now, what are they even, what is even the limited hangout? The limited hangout is like, okay, but we, we didn't necessarily intend to be bad. Like, is that, is that like but it doesn't even make sense. The, 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 the line we're standing at now, but it, I don't know, I guess I just, I don't really know how much to extrapolate from that. It's just, it's just funny. Really. They just want to, they want to outlast <laughs> the news cycle. That's what they do. They outlast yeah. the news cycle and then they, they press on with their lives. Yeah. And, uh, and they're hoping that we will too, that we will stop holding accountability to them, uh, which, you know, in many ways we can't do, <laughs> we can't yeah. because we're going to let them slip away and they'll just continue to be doing the same thing that's been gone for, for decades. This is a decades old problem and this is just the newest iteration of it. Yeah. Uh, I did want to touch on one of your most recent, uh, whistleblowing activities I heard of is the January 6th pipe bombs thing, which yeah. is the pipe bombs is one of those ones that like, even me being someone who's a little bit more schizo and into the sort of like pattern recognition stuff we see here. And I dig in this a little bit. I haven't really dug too much into it. It's kind of, it was weirdly one of those ones that kind of flew under the radar. It was almost like a, it seemed to be something that just added slightly to, to give a, a slight bit of substance to the January 6th story. Cause it's like, Oh, we had these, this pipe bombs. And it's like, but then it just kind of like, no one really dwells in that point long. It just always seemed weird to me like what the like what 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 happened here why like and it is weird too as well like it actually rhymes with uh it, my buddy uh ken silva who's a uh who's a reporter for headline usa libertarian institute and uh you know he's been enoch times he's done a bunch of different places but he he actually was sending me before this was telling me talking about this he was letting me know like oh yeah you should talk to kyle because he just talked about this and he was reminding me that i this is actually a point i had forgotten about i probably had seen it before uh, one of the actors in the Oklahoma City bombing story, uh, Donna Langan, who was a transgender in prison now, used to be Pete. I almost forgot his, his, normal, his original first name. He was one of the individuals, a member of the ARA, which is this group McVeigh was kind of associated with. A lot of people think he was tied into. A lot of people think it might have been a PatCon operation ARA because that is some information that came out that uh, – John Matthews, a former PatCon individual, asked to, to his like command his like handler essentially, mm -hmm. and he said something along the lines of, "Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure those are or whatever." And it's like, so I don't know, maybe it wasn't PatCon, maybe it was, uh, I don't know. But either way, point being is they also utilized in their bank robberies pipe bombs, which I don't know the specifics on why or how, but it's like it is weird. It's like, are we seeing some sort of? I guess because for me, I, I I'll be completely frank. I mean, I have nothing to assert this. But when I see some like January 6th pipe bomb stuff and some of the stuff comes out to me, that glows like the fucking sun. <laughs> like, like, so, like, especially when I yeah, read. Yeah, I don't think those. you're I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people have that instinct. Here, here's the it's like, why? I'm like, maybe I'm connecting dots that should be connected. But I'm like, I mean, I guess I understand in January 6th. But like in prior things is like, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, it, it's a differing method for differing things. But it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird when you see like other things in the past that mirror it. And you're like, oh, maybe there's something there. Maybe I'm reaching. Either way, it glows and it's odd. But I'll let you go. I'll let you know. Tell the audience what what information you have and pertaining to that. But go on. So I mean, the bombs were were inert. 
Um, mm. But let, let's just take it on the, let's go superficial and get, and get uh, kind of layered, layer ourselves downward. So number one, uh, anyone leaving a explosive device an improvised explosive device in a public space, that is a terroristic activity. So that should be a number one concern for a federal law enforcement agency that is tasked with running that sort of thing down. That should be the person you should be getting faster than anybody else and putting all the resources on because bombs are indiscriminate. They don't, they're not targeted. They're not a bullet. You can't aim them. You don't know how they're going to go off. And if they, if they have a timer on them, that's even more nasty because you have no idea who's going to be there. If they're command wire or, or remote detonate is a different animal, maybe, but even so a very indiscriminate tool. So that is terroristic, you know, no holds barred. And I'm not getting into like why using that. Let's just talk about it on its, on its face. Um, then secondarily, we have them happening in Washington, D.C., which is one of the most videotaped cities in America. It is, has some of the highest amounts of video surveillance that's available in any city. And all cities are pretty much there. But most of those cameras or a big chunk of them are actually federal cameras or they are accessible to federal uh, investigators very, very quickly with almost no paperwork. So that's another piece of it. And then you have public transportation that moves around. And in this case, it's believed that the, uh, the person of interest that we had followed was using public transportation, which means you have timestamps, you have cameras, you have date stamps, you have credit cards and so on. There's a lot of different ways that you can run this thing to ground and find out who was involved. And, and that was done very quickly from what I could tell. Um, within a few days, we were actually following a person of interest who supposedly, you know, was in the vicinity of, may have been the person that had dropped these devices and then traveled away from it with some really concrete leads to the point where I was sitting in front of somebody's door. Which, which I want to mention, which I guess you probably maybe were about to say, this individual, the person in question, just so happened to be someone who retired as the highest rank you could possibly be in the in the enlisted uh, in the enlisted rank structure, an E nine. Uh, I don't know if you. So, I mean. Uh, okay, I guess he that was doesn't... A, as, as far as I know, he was a security contractor at that oh, time. Oh, yeah, he was, I forgot so he, he was a helped. contractor as well. So, so it's my belief those, that, yeah. you know, the way we were briefed it, and look, I, I don't remember the guy's name anymore. We looked it up. Actually, one of my buddies uh, and I were looking into it and going like, you know, did we ever, whatever happened with that guy? Because when we were still in the bureau, it was, a, it was a, a legitimate question that why had this not come up? And it's something that I brought to Congress. I mean, this is the other thing. There are whistleblowers, you'll never know their names, guys like me that like I didn't intend to be a public figure. That wasn't my goal. I didn't actually set out to do this. I set out to go to Congress and right wrongs that needed to be exposed. And that's the right way you do it. And then Congress can make it public or not, you know, whatever. Uh, what happened was my agency found out that I'd gone to Congress. And when they decided to crush me, I decided that my only option was to try my case in the court of public appeal because it was never going to go fairly through any of the, the nonsensical sort of bullshit mechanisms that exist in the federal government. They're all made up. So you know, I went to one and they're like, oh, we don't have jurisdiction. So F you. And then I go to the other one. And they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure the other people have jurisdictions. I'm like, they just said they don't. And then you go and, and the FBI investigates itself and says, well, we found no wrongdoing. So that's not going to ever work out well for you. Uh, but but when it comes down to who this person was, it made sense. It was an interesting background. I was like, let me just go knock on the door and talk to him. It's really easy. You know, I'm a non-retard who can talk to another human being. And I will just lay out the, what I, I'm like, look, I'll, I'll lay him out what we know. And just say, this is a chance you could come clean. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe this is a good way for you to get out of it. And if it's something that you have to go get an attorney, then do that too. I don't care. Like it, That's the way it's supposed to work. You complete your investigation. If someone talks to you, great. If they don't talk to you, great. There was nothing he could do at that point or anybody could do at this point after the bombs have already been dropped that would stop the bombs from being dropped and the information from being out there in the world. Right. So there's no reason not to, you know, go talk to possible subjects and just say, this is what we think. And this is why we think it might be you. And would you like to chat with us? And if they say no, then you move on and you keep investigating. Um, 
That didn't happen. I was pulled off that. So was the rest of my surveillance team. We all got moved inside. We all just handled all these sort of BS uh, January 6th leads, which came in from West Virginia. This is all the internet, uh, you know, keyboard warriors that were sedition hunting for everybody that they hated because it was a one-sided, you know, uh, witch hunt. Uh, my buddy Dan Bongino calls it the turn in your MAGA grandma weekend. And so that's what they did. Uh, but that doesn't take away from what these, these pipe bombs were. So the story was the bombs were in fact inert. Um, I talked to a number of different EOD guys, guys who have seen pictures of it, guys who are actually, you know, involved in the render safe program the FBI has for doing this looked bomb like may have held some types of, you know, bomb like materials, black powder or what have you, but um, didn't have a power source and didn't have a mechanism to actually execute an explosive. So this was just something that was in the area that looked the part. And so that makes a dress up. Now, here's why that's interesting. You talk about glowing. The feds are never going to give you a real bomb. If they're going to set you up with something, it's not going to be real. It's going to be to set you up. And then the second thing is, is there's no reason why we should not have run this person to ground and found out who it was. And they should not have been, you know, that person should have been charged. The only reasonable things I can think of is somebody doesn't want that person to be found. And the most likely thing for that is, is that that person is, is or was a federal source for some agency at some point, And they were asked not to run after it. Now, the fact that we pursued that person in the first place tells me it wasn't an FBI operation. And, and so that's the things that you start to suss out when you know a little bit about how it happens. Same thing with Ray Epps. People get really rowdy about Ray Epps. Oh, he was a Fed. He worked for the FBI. Mm, no. And, and, and think about the, the, very, the very precision of the statement that was put out on CBS when he was interviewed. You know, he was never an FBI employee and he has never, you know, been on the payroll or ever, you know, been a source of the FBI. Yeah. I remember well, when that first happened being like, there's something to the specificity being used here. Correct. But, and that's on. always the way they play that yeah. game. Right. So, um, you know, there's a lot of federal agencies, as you well know. There's the ATF, there's the DEA, mm -hmm. there's the uh, the Marshal Service. That's just going to be the and ones that, that are becomes under... an issue with them entangling. But go on, I'm sure your budget has that. Well, that's just that's the only ones that exist, you know, under yeah. DOJ, and they have certain rules and protocols they have to play by. And there's an entire another suite of people that exist. First of all, there's there's thousands of federal agents that are part of you know Department of Commerce and the Small Business Association, and I have no idea what those people do. But I do know that there's a whole other law enforcement angle that people may know that are like. Homeland Security Investigations, HSI. And, um, you know, there's Customs and Border Protection, CBP. And then there's also the Border Patrol, United States Border Patrol. That's a different entity as well. And then you've got things like, uh, you know, ICE and ERO, Enforcement Removal Operations. There's a bunch of these different little sub-organizations under DHS. The FBI gets about $11 billion, $10 billion a year to operate in their budget. DHS runs on 120-something, almost $130 billion. So it's a 10x multiplier, how much is available and how many different agencies are functioning underneath it. Some of them are very small, like the federal air marshals have been doing January 6th surveillance and they're, you know, a couple thousand people. They've been pulled off looking at jihadis that were flying over here, you know, what we call KSTs, known suspected terrorists. And so anybody could have been involved in this operation. And then it would just take a while for it all to get back and be like, mm, nope, don't, don't touch that. Don't pull that string. You're done with it. And then that would be the end of it. And you know, the American people should know what it was. And if it was a fed op of some kind that went sideways or didn't go sideways, maybe it went off the way it was supposed to. Maybe it was yeah. like, yeah, we wanted to expose somebody and we did. Then explain yeah, it. You, you kind of got at a key point that uh, ties into, and we talked on this early, earlier, that none of these entities are a 
or a monolith. And uh, this is a common thing. Uh, this comes up a lot with the OKC one because with John Doe 2, a uh, big part of John Doe 2, Kenneth, a lot of people think that Kenneth Trinidu ended up dying because they thought he was John Doe 2 and got some sort of enhanced derogation of some sort. And then a lot of people be like, well, why would the feds do that if, if we're going to, if, because a lot of people take the assumption that John Doe 2 was some sort of fed, whether it was informant, whether it was whatever. And it's like, okay, but these this group's not a monolith. I mean, if you understand, like, John Doe 2, the biggest manhunt in, in like, fed history essentially happened in May. And then, uh, no, April. And then in May, there was an internal FBI memo that was uh, put out amongst the, I forget which specific field office. But it was essentially, we're going to hold all leads for this into abeyance. And then the following month, June, that is when they go, the official story becomes, oh, no, we imagine John Doe 2. So it, it is like you see how the uh, information is released and that, like, yes, if, let's say, let's say John Doe 2 is a Fed. Let's, let's say that's the case. Now, who's going to know that? It's probably only going to be a handful of people within the agency. Correct. Yeah. Compartmentalization so, is a real thing. <laughs> so now how long is it going to take for that uh, information to be passed on to uh, field agents? Like, yeah, I know they got the memo about the, the abeyance because uh, Kenneth Trendu's death happened after the abeyance, uh, which for those who aren't aware, abeyance just means like we're not pursuing those leads, essentially. Um right. But it, it's it like now who's to say field agents won't go? Well, I don't know. That seems weird. I might still dig into that a little bit like it or, you know, or it just takes a while for information gets passed along uh, to for someone so to get emails or whatever. It, yeah. It's and never, monolith, never discount you know? the, the yeah. fog of war, too. When people yes. are doing crazy investigations, particularly when something, uh, you know, explosive happens and there's just a chaotic, you know, mass casualty event. The, the number of resources that come to bear, the number of teams that are going to come in is significant. And so the quarterback, like nobody is ready to handle an Oklahoma City bombing tomorrow. They would be, it's the same thing. My buddy was one of the task force, um, one of the two task force supervisors. He was on the Intel side for the Boston Marathon bombing, much smaller scale, but an enormous crime scene and a big manhunt. And so all those things, like nobody was ready for that. There were people that were working themselves sick. They weren't going home because they thought they needed to be there. They didn't have, a, you know, like a, an easy, um, you know, chain of management. I hate to use the word chain of command because there is no chain of command and not in the, not in the uh, civilian service. But this chain of leadership, this chain of management wasn't established and nobody knew what needed to be done or who needed to do it. So everybody was doing everything. It, uh, you know, the federal government and specifically law enforcement are not nimble organizations, not even a little bit. They yeah. are yeah. they are very clunky. And, and they don't build in. There's a whole system called NIMS, the National Incident Management System. This is a post 9-11 phenomenon. People that are in firefighting, you know, people that are used to big accident scenes and stuff like that, they know how to do this stuff. You have to have an on-scene commander. There's a, there's a chain of command that falls under, underneath whoever the highest ranking person is and everybody gets a role. And then you handle your role until you're relieved. The, the Bureau doesn't train NIMS. I think I might've done a NIMS course, but like I'd done a bunch of them as a paramedic. And, you know, my buddy is like a level five NIMS commander from his firefighter days and he's looking around and he's like, these people have no idea how to handle anything. <laughs> like if anything bad happened, the FBI would fall apart and it does every single time something bad happens anywhere. It's just, it's a shit show. It's a complete soup sandwich, you know, chaotic mess. So never discount, you know, never, never assume that there's some sort of nefarious purpose when it's just as likely to be stupidity, you know, and, and more often than not, it is stupidity or inexperience.
I, I also think it's important that kind of point, I mean, there's multiple points to be derived from, you know, this thing not being a monolith, but I think it's important to keep in mind as much as, I mean, people who follow me know I'm technically an anarcho-capitalist, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of government, but I am able to understand and see things in the real world. And like, yeah, I may not like the FBI as an entity, but that doesn't mean say with something like Oklahoma City bombing. Let's say, for example, I want to put like a ton and I actually do put a ton of, of blame at the feet of the FBI uh, for you know the fact that if you look at the groups they've infiltrated, it it, it gets becomes very obvious to some degree there was some level of culpability of some individuals within the FBI. But now, does that mean there weren't people on the ground who thought they were doing the right thing, who were trying to take uh, bring people to justice, who were helping people, you know, saving people from the rubble, all these different things, and that they had no clue about any of this stuff going on? Of course, there's going to be there's both of those things are going to exist at the same time. So yeah. I can say the FBI is a shitty agency altogether and also recognize that there are, you know, people that while I may be like, as you, you you're recovering fed, obviously you have issues with what's going on here. I don't know about your opinions and whether it's reformable or not, uh, but either way, it's still kind of like just being a member of that organization doesn't technically like yeah maybe you could say as an agent of that organization maybe it's it, overall the, the bad outweighs the good maybe but on an individual level people are individuals and you got to look at the specific things they're doing day to day and even then they may do you know they may carry out some uh i don't know like me being a libertarian like say with cops with drug busts or whatever i may technically be like that's not right but it's like okay but that guy also may have saved a kid the day prior. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta analyze things individually. Like when, when you know, mul most of the people in my camp were, were, were hooting and hollering when, uh, when they took out that, what, the tranny killer over in uh, what, Tennessee? Like that was like flawless stuff. And we're most known, like the ANCAP guys for being like ACAP type people. And it's like, no, that's, but like, we're like so anti Someone's going to go kill kids. Yes. Yeah. And a badass <laughs> cop like that guy, yeah. Rex, whatever what was his name. Um, was it Rex Tillerson? Is that his last name? Yeah. I don't know. I just, if that happened every time, we'd have nothing to complain about. <laughs> no, because those guys were studs. They yeah, were absolute exactly. studs. I actually did a whole podcast on it. I called it the Super Bowl of masculinity. And yeah. I talked about it on Timcast, uh, of all things. But it was one of those things. It's like, look, if one day you wake up in the morning, you put on your pants, you get your coffee, you kiss your wife goodbye, you get in your car, you drive to your place of business. And then out of nowhere, someone goes, hey, champ, you're stepping into the game. You get to be a man at the highest level. You're going to go put your life on the line and you're going to do it for children. You're up. And then you perform and you throw the touchdown pass. You step into, you know, you run down, you move to the sound of gunfire, you raise your rifle up and you take down a shooter that has just chilled, killed, you know, some teachers in a, in a kindergarten and some little kids. Then, dude, you get the trophy. That's it. Like you are a stud and you don't have to like cops to love what that guy did because that guy could have been anybody who wasn't a cop who handled business because that's the way you handle that business. If someone's trying to kill children, you have to kill that person. Period. Like that, there's no other way to stop it. So, um, yeah, I, look, I, I think that there's uh, probably we probably have some some political disagreements on it. End of the day, I think local cops, especially good local cops, and there are a vast majority of cops that are good. If you paid them better, my brother is probably more in your camp and we have these disagreements. He's like, I don't want to defund police. I want to pay them more. I want to get the best cops possible so that we get sort of like. Social worker ninjas. You know, people that can disable without ever drawing their gun, people that can talk somebody off a ledge without ever having to, you know, use a taser or do anything wild. And and if you had really highly trained, really well paid, super confident and competent law enforcement, 
most people that are in sort of the uh, the the libertarian and even like the the sort of like lib groups would feel good about that if this person was educated and had like cultural experience and de-escalation tactics and you know was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu you know practitioner and just a stud then that'd be great. We just don't want to put the money behind that kind of thing. We want to pay chiefs a big salary. We want to pay administrators. And then you miss out on, on paying like stud operators that should really be out there doing that thing. Yeah. And, and instead, and we, and we put them in single cars. Like if you put every cop in, in doubles, there's a reason why when two people are together, it's very hard to get away with a lot of stuff. Somebody's conscience is going to betray them. So having two cops on scene at all times is actually really better for everybody. But unfortunately, we don't want to fund, you know, double occupancy patrol. Yeah, I agree with you that there is a very strong individual aspect. There are people in the FBI that have done very good things. There's no question about it. They've done the thing that you'd want them to do with their time. There are people that have, you know, liberated children from child sex trafficking. They've, you know, I've sat on surveillances where nobody's really excited about fed surveillance. But like, what if I'm watching a guy who's pimping out underage girls? You know, and all we do is count the number of dudes that are that are going in there to be Johns. And then the SWAT team comes in and grabs them all and all the girls get out safe. I don't feel bad about that. You know, how about a guy that's sworn his allegiance to ISIS and he wants to blow something up in this country and he's legitimately radicalized. And then you've got someone like me out there watching him. And the most important thing was, is I'm willing to give that guy a fair shake. And if they gave me like 200 bucks and authorized me, I probably could have got him to sign up for the Marine Corps because he was a man looking for a purpose. Unfortunately, the Fed is actually incentivized to run these cases forever and get statistics, statistical accomplishments, what they call stats. And by doing that, that's how executives get bonuses. So they are not incentivized to actually do really good law enforcement and prohibit these things and take, you know, proper counteractions. What they're 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 actually encouraged to set them up with these sort of not legally definition but moral equivalent of entrapment, like we saw in Gretchen Whitmer's case, uh, and and then get these guys busted because then you can send this person who's basically oftentimes a, a total like a legitimate retard or close to it someone who doesn't have the the mental ability to pull off anything or just in a really rough spot adam fox i believe was in the in the throes of an awful divorce he yeah. was living in the in a, and a that's vacuum how it works. repair basement like yeah people who have not a pot to piss in as my dad would yeah. say yeah and he was on he was basically fucked up all the time on something yep. like he was in a just in a rough spot in his life and they he generally just kind of is in a similar spot of us where he, he's actually more of a constitutional guy than maybe me more me more, being more like an ancap type guy but he just generally is a freedom lover and it was just like you know what yeah i don't like the government and i want to go train with buddies and shoot guns and like i don't know i don't know how much you've dug into that story but that enough, one to, enough to know how that it's almost the same as every other counterterrorism case that I worked, which is to say they're all sort of the moral equivalent of entrapment. They may not they skirt the legal definition by a very um, specific language that they use when they talk to them, like they give an out and, you know, it has to be the other, you know, they can't introduce the idea, but they can they can fuel the idea. So this is my basic advice to people. And I continue doing it. I used to laugh. I, I'd say it when I was a Fed, too. Um it goes something like this. If you ever meet somebody, generally speaking, online, but let's say you meet somebody in real life. Um, gun store, gym, you know, some easily approachable place where you're out and you're known to frequent. And that person agrees with all of your worst ideas. Like the ideas that you know are the worst ideas. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm really fed up with the uh, social security administration. I'd love to just blow the doors off that place, you know, and then just machine gun everybody coming out of it. So if that's your worst idea and you say that, and this guy's like, yeah, dude, that's a great idea. <laughs> okay. And then he's willing to help you carry it out. And he's willing to help you for the exact amount of money that you have. And then generally speaking, he's only willing to meet you during, you know, weekdays and not on weekends or nights. Um, 
you're dealing with a legitimate undercover Fed, and there's a possibility you could also be dealing with a with a confidential human source, a, an informant, because nobody does that. If someone tells you like, I'm going to get you a Glock, you know, 19 with a threaded barrel and an RMR on top of it and a, and a suppressor, and I can get it to you for 600 bucks, and you've got 675 bucks in your bank account, like that's a Fed. That's what that is. You don't want to do that. You want to not do that. And then also that keeps you from doing dumb things. So don't do dumb things. That's the other piece of it. That's actually good for everybody too. Don't do dumb things, but know if somebody is encouraging your dumb thing, then you should be suspicious. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that blows my mind with the Michigan one, and maybe, maybe you've seen it with other ones, but like, uh, maybe I just haven't dug in with as much. It's so paper thin that it, I like, wouldn't even say paper, like paper thin. They're all paper thin. It's there's nothing like I, when I first started digging into the, the, the Gretchen Whitmer one, I was like, there's gotta be some small grain. Cause I feel like most of the time there's some small grain of like, somebody okay, said well, maybe something. they got you there. But nope. it's like nothing, like nothing. They didn't do That's... anything. There was no concoction on their part. There was no actual action, nothing. It was just like these feds came up with this plot and then they said these guys were kind of sort of with us and I guess sort of kind of were going along with a plot or theoretically may have if yep. we had actually gone through with it, but she didn't and weren't actually making any active plans towards it. And these people you try to prop up as being leaders or being having anything that, that wasn't the case. Um, if anything, you see multiple occasions where if anything, they laughed and they're like, well, that seems like fed stuff and stuff like that. And, and just with anything, we're very dismissive. Like, no, it's stupid. Why would we do that? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that that goes on and they're almost yeah. all like that. And so, like I said, th there's, there's two types of people that kind of fall for it. There's people that are really desperate for friends that are really looking for an association and a reason to connect other human beings. And then the other ones are people that are like functionally, functionally lower IQ, you know, bordering on not capable of sustaining themselves. And when that happens, man, it, they considered a great victory. There was one in Oklahoma city recently, uh, a couple of years back. You may have seen this one. I can't remember the kid's name, but he was like, he was a diagnosed schizophrenic and he was in and out of medications. His parents actually had custody of him as a power of attorney. He couldn't, he like, he was divorced. He was, you know, 25 and the wife was afraid he was going to kill her all the time. The guy basically wasn't let, he was a basket case of a human being. And the FBI basically was like, Oh, like you want to blow up something, some federal building. And, and it was literally the same idea. They're like, let's put it in a truck. And here's the bomb. Like, you know, put your finger on the bomb. And so he's like, Oh, and then he clicks this fake device. And then they, you know, flashbang him and, and take him into custody, but it wasn't real. There's a, there's a meme that my buddies and I send around all the time. Anybody who's worked these kind of cases, we like to send it out. And, uh, the meme is essentially like a guy with a ray jacket on saying FBI in the back. And he's got his gun drawn. It says when the FBI finally finds out who's causing all the terrorism in this country and he's pointing it at the J Edgar Hoover building. And, and, you know, that's, that's realistic in, in a lot of ways. Um, let me let me recommend some reading to you. Have you read uh, The Terror Factory by oh, Trevor? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so that's spot on, but yes. you can apply that to not just jihadis. Mm -hmm. So Aronson, um, his take is that it's black and brown people because the FBI is racist. That's his take. Uh, yeah, and, I, and he, I agree. That was like lacking. I found the thesis. Well, he and I talked about this and I told him, I think he's wrong. So, yeah. you know, he he texted me the other day. So he that's literally the at the end makes the point like, well, we could totally use this domestically and that'd make more sense. You're like, no, that's way worse. <laughs> but go that's on. exactly how it works. So here's the thing. He's spot on right now. It's, you know, that that book is 11 years old or 12 years old at this point. And and we continue to talk and, and he goes, look, I still think that white supremacy is probably the biggest threat of the domestic terrorist thing. And I said, there's two things that could be true at once. It can be the biggest slice of the pie, but the pie is statistically irrelevant. And he said, I agree. There's a thousand things more likely to kill you in this country than white supremacy. I said, then that's why we get along. That's why he and I are able to have really good rapport. And he actually sent me some information. He was like, look, read this. 
So there's a uh, website. It's called justsecurity.org. And it is a think tank that is funded out of NYU. Definitely not a right source. And it is, uh, they get money from the Open Society or what Open Society's Foundation. So Soros funded. And there's another guy named Chuck Finney who gets money in there from the, it's called Atlantic uh, Philanthropies. So there's a bunch of money put in by leftist sources. And they went after and said the threat of domestic terrorism and their concern is black and brown people. That's fine. I don't care. Like I'm concerned about black and brown people and everybody else too. Like I'm, I'm concerned about all of them. And what he says is, in this, there's an article. It was actually, it's like a week old at this point. It was released May 8th. So I just talked about this today on the radio and you might as well hear it. They looked at 4,000 DOJ tagged domestic terrorist cases over the past, it was, it was 2006 to 2020 was the time frame they looked at them. So there's obviously more now, but 4,000 of them, pretty good size bucket and almost all of them one at that time. And of those, they were able to get their eyes on 1,140 of those cases. And of those 1,140, so roughly what, like almost 30% of the cases, they see that only 71 actually had documented connections to any terrorist nexus of any kind. So that's 6%. And then they told the judge like, hey, we're not able to see the rest of this stuff. Could you you know, do a survey? And so he did an in-camera survey of you know, a just scooped up a little bucket of 20 cases at random out of the remaining 3,000. And of those 20, only one of them had a domestic terrorism nexus that they was actually documented. So 19 of them didn't. So that's 5%. And so roughly speaking, if we were being very generous, 90% of the so-called white supremacy cases, domestic violent extremist cases relating to militias, you know, anything else are bullshit. And that's the ones that are actually prosecuted and go to adjudication, either pled out or anything else. You can imagine the cases that are being worked, it's even worse because they can't even charge those. So it's very fair to say that of all the domestic terrorism cases that we worked, and I worked a bunch of them, I don't know how many, but you know, like dozens a year in the surveillance role, only one of them resulted in an arrest. And the arrest was relatively public. It was a guy, part of a neo-Nazi group called The Base, which I think was a play on Al-Qaeda. You may have heard of this guy. He was a Canadian explosives expert out of their military, which when someone says explosive expert, like I'm probably an explosive expert as well. So I don't know how expert he was, but he snuck into the country. He actually came in on foot. He uh, bypassed border patrol, uh, bypassed port of entry, made his way down to Atlanta, got into a car in Atlanta and drove his way up to Maryland to meet up with like these other, you know, a-hole white supremacist types. And, and, and they did seem to be, the, the real deal. Uh, one of them looked like Ed Sheehan, which I thought was really funny. Just like this like weird looking, ugly redhead guy. And, uh, and we followed them from Atlanta because we found them right away. Everybody was writing news articles like, no one knows where this guy is. He's like a Canadian explosive expert on the loose. It's like, no, no, we know exactly where he is. I thought that was funny. So we knew where he was. We followed him up. He drives his way up. We, we track him all the way to Maryland, you know, sat on the house. SWAT team came and hit it. They were a-holes. They had plans. They had guns. They were building bombs. They wanted to go do some bad things to black people near Baltimore. Crisis averted. That's the only one in three years. And, and that, and, and, you know, and I told my buddy Phil that, and he had done it for three years before that. And he was like, oh, that's the first one I've ever heard of. <laughs> so, you know, maybe the first one in six years that the, the FBI really dealt with in that way. Yeah, it, it is crazy. Like if you extrapolate this, these ideas that are being expressed here, what we're saying is it really makes you realize whether it's intentional or not. I mean, I, I depending on the specific thing, I can, I, I almost believe sometimes it is intentional. It's, but it is, it is be essentially created a giant psyop. Like if you extrapolate this idea, the idea that 
the vast majority of these cases are completely bullshit. And then especially if you then, you know, extrapolate that throughout time, throughout the amount of time that this likely has been happening and assume it's probably been happening more throughout time. Like what kind of impressions that create? Like I can tell you, you know, once again, to bring it back to the Oklahoma City bombing, you look at how rife all these different uh, extremist groups, particularly the white supremacist groups at the time, which now is the basis that we always point to of like, this is kind of where it started, Oklahoma City bombing. Jeffrey Tubin literally just had a book that came out about this bullshit. Yeah, I know. Making yeah. that exact case. And yep. it's like, that is a starting point. But what a lot of people don't know is how rife the like multiple different CIA, FBI, ATF, literally there was SBLC informants that somehow got in the mix, which is of course. I mean, not that I'm saying that they were necessarily did anything bad. I think they were just more like, just kind of infiltrated white supremacist groups but either way it's still like interesting but they've in infiltrated all these groups they you know there are multiple informants that seem to at least be whether they were actually helping along they were there supporting it in some role and it's like now you're kind of upholding this thing then whether you want to say it was a drop the ball or was completely organic or whatever your take is on the Oklahoma City bombing itself then an event happens and now we get to uphold this and then it's just like this you know, if you really look at what the reality is, the reality is, is this was to some extent helped along, whether intentionally or not. So by, you know, f the federal apparatus and we have created this inflated idea of what this entity is. And it's nothing. There's these white supremacist groups are basically nothing. They're they're meaningless. If it wasn't for this psyop that occurred the, i actually think the Oklahoma city bombing probably never would have happened because it just creates this idea where you almost create your own thing even if even if we want to take like essentially take as much culpability as possible away from these federal agents and make it so it's somehow big some big oopsie even though we infiltrated all these groups it's still like at the very least you've inflated this threat and yes. it's kind of essentially created this like self-fulfilling prophecy in a weird way if that yeah well sense. they need it they need it to be able to get funding yeah, so that's even if we that's why i don't believe patriot scenario. front that's yeah. why i don't believe patriot yeah. front is legit it's like there may have been some guys who had some bad ideas that started this patriot front group and march around in khakis but they marched like the same idiots that were walking around on quantico so i don't know and then i like like to, to, uh, is it 10 percent infiltrated by feds is it 80 percent? like any of those things would be like I, I would believe any of it if you were to say Hey, we've done some conclusions. We, you know, ran the backgrounds and all these people and 60% of them are, you know, federal informants and 20% of them are UCs. I'd go, oh, okay. That doesn't surprise me. Like none of that would surprise me. Um, yeah. and because someone's paying for rider trucks and none of those guys look like they have like money to burn on rider, rider trucks. trucks. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, renting a big truck and then putting each other in it yeah. and driving cross country yeah. or whatever the heck they putting do and carrying a nitrate bomb in there, <laughs> dude, making those shields and stuff like that. Like making cool guy shields. Like they're all yeah. fabricated. They've got like, you know, mylar wraps on them that are all kind of color coded like captain America. It's like, you know, I, I never I even put know. together the, the two and two there that they're, they're, they're being moved around in rider trucks. <laughs> Yeah. For those who aren't picking up the obvious reference, McVeigh was it was a rider truck. But that's right. Uh, I, I know. I mean, that could that's obviously probably likely just a coincidence. But I just thought it was funny. Well, uh, they've used you. Yeah, they've used you yeah. all trucks and other rentals too. But yeah, but, you know, still, <laughs> it's it's just silly. It's no. it, and here's the thing. I, I'm fairly confident it's not the FBI. Once again, the way that they handled it, uh, I know somebody that was demoted and lost his job um, over refusing to write search warrants that were unconstitutional in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So, you know, the FBI wants to know who they are too. That's not to say that they don't have infiltration into it at this point, but when they were in Coeur d'Alene, the 31 people that got arrested on that particular day, the Bureau was pushing very hard to get information. Now I would be, you know, 
not shocked at all to find out that the Bureau was pushing really hard to find out that they found out it was suddenly a DHS op because that would make the most sense to me. Once again, um, DHS is kind of the most nefarious. And the reason why is they don't have what's called the Diog. The Diog is the domestic information, the domestic operation. Hold on. Domestic. What is it? Investigations and operations guide. So that is what tells that's the balls and strikes. That's the um, what is and what isn't out of bounds for the FBI to be able to do for any individual agent as they run their cases. And if you don't have that manual, which they don't, this was written by the attorney general. Guess who doesn't answer to the attorney general? Everybody at Homeland Security because they answer mm -hmm. to Secretary Mayorkas. So that's a different game altogether. And this is kind of a new ground post 9-11. We didn't have that post uh, pre 9-11. Mm -hmm. you know, an entire law enforcement apparatus that was unaccountable to the attorney general. That's kind of interesting. It's new. Yeah. It Ish. allows for a lot more fuckery to be afoot and a lot Correct. more, uh, I mean, it, that is a nice way of saying that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It allows a lot more wiggle room, a lot more weirdness. Like, uh, in Ron Johnson's recent thing that came out for those who are familiar with him, you guys, the guy who did the men goats. He recently just, it's weird. All this, uh, OKC content, but it's coming out, but he just did another one where he covered, uh, the specific aspect of Carol Howe, who was an ATF informant who was within the Elohim City group, uh, kind of infiltrated in there. And that's where we get a lot of we get a lot of stuff from her. And it kind of became this limited hangout where he uh, one of the main things that I really irritated me on is one one of the big things is uh, Carol Howe reported to her ATF handlers a lot of the stuff going on there. The fact that she was casing the Murrah building with Dennis Mahon and Andrea Strassmeyer, I believe, three times. And he was, she was telling him these sort of things. And the ATF had intended on raiding Elohim City. And keep in mind, this was after Waco. So yeah. and that's then the, the one way, I was thinking of, by yeah, the way. And then when they framed it and when they framed the way they framed it in this recent uh, thing, Ron Johnson put together is he made it sound like the FBI quashed it because they did. The FBI did come in and said, uh, uh, we're not doing this. And what people like me and some other researchers who have looked into this start realizing, well, that's likely because there was probably some sort of FBI infiltration occurring in Elohim City already. And the ATF may have already stepped on their foot because there's allusions to PatCon there. Obviously, I'm not expecting you to you agree with any of this. You probably haven't looked into all this. No, but... I haven't looked into that enough to know anything <laughs> about it. But, uh, you know, yeah. here's the here's the funny thing. Once you've been on the inside and you've seen the way that they treat people that try to do the right thing. Anything's on, you know, anything's on the table for me, mm -hmm. like. I won't dismiss anything out of hand. Um, you know, my wife's like, are they going to send a SWAT team to kick in our door? And I go, I don't think so. I don't know why they would, yeah. but I wouldn't put it past them at this point. <laughs> That's certainly a possibility. So if they do, you know, I'll be in my boxers and uh, I'll say what's up and, yeah. and, and that'll be awkward. Or they could have just called me. But when you don't trust the way the agency operates, because you've seen the way it works and you understand that there are many compromised people there then uh, a lot of things are on the table that wouldn't have otherwise been on the table because I've, I've got some good friends that work there. I've got some good people that like you'd get along with them, you know, and, and most people would. They're, they're just interesting, smart, capable, physically fit, you know, love, love America, love freedom, don't want to mess with anybody, you know, say that's stupid and, and, and I don't want to mess with that type of case. Happens all the time. My buddy would be like, why would I mess around with that? Like, hmm, yeah, they're on their own. Uh, that's not even, that's not important enough for us to be messing with. Yeah, but, but the limited hangout became that they then framed it as if the FBI stopped the raid on Elohim City because in light of Waco, they didn't want another Waco, right. which it becomes to me that becomes this false dichotomy, which don't be wrong. I'm not a fan of the Waco raid, but uh, I maybe you'll disagree with me here, but I feel like it creates a silly idea of it's either Waco or nothing. And it's like, 
Or I don't know, we could employ a bajillion other law enforcement, uh, you know, ways to go about this instead of just letting slide this group of individuals who seem to be planning a bombing on a federal building. Right. I don't know. Like it doesn't just well. Yeah. We'll just let this yeah. Waco or nothing seems like the <laughs> dumbest move, but that tells you the sort of mentality that's running you know, the upper echelon, which is to say that there's a massive amount of political consideration. Here's something. This is a small um, tidbit. It's a guy named Michael Copeland. Um, he'll never know we said this, but anyway, Mike Copeland's an agent. He's in um, he's in Albuquerque and he is the primary firearms instructor there. And he is the uh, senior SWAT team leader. And I didn't think very much of him because for the following reason, he was on the Baltimore SWAT team just before or just after Freddie Gray, you know, was, uh, whatever, whatever happened to him, you know, rough rided or, or died in custody or however he died. So all that was kind of politically charged. He's on the SWAT team out there. He spent some time in the FBI at that point. And, um, he goes into on a search warrant and, and gets into a shooting and agent involved shootings are pretty rare. They all get, you know, evaluated, investigated by the FBI. So we investigate ourselves. And uh, so he goes into this room. He's the number two guy going through the door. So you have appreciation for what that means. That means somebody else was in there first. He clears his corner. His sector of fire goes basically, you know, either left or right or right to left. And as he gets about halfway into it, there's a female, black female. And he opens fire at her. Five rounds from an AR inside of a room. Doesn't hit her. She drops into the fetal position, as you might expect. Then she sprints out of the room when he stops shooting. And then he starts shooting more and he traces against her fires through drywall that he can't see blindly into a stairwell, misses her, misses her dad. Who's also in the stairwell, another five, six rounds. Um, and he's increasing his rate of fire. Like, so it's like, it was like, bang, 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 bang. All right. So he fires off somewhere like between 10 and 13 rounds, something to that effect. They do the review. They asked him why he fired. He said, I thought she had a weapon. And his justification was she had metallic fingernail polish which didn't sound good and also doesn't look like a gun. Yeah. So the shooting review team broke 50, 50 from what I'm told and basically said, it's probably not a good shoot. If you had hit her, it would have definitely been a bad shoot, but because you didn't hit her, we're going to come down and say it was a good shoot because if we say it was a bad shoot, the city is going to burn because we just had riots because of Freddie gray. And so they took a political aspect onto whether or not it was a good shoot. They sent him back for remedial training to be a remedial SWAT operator. He said, I can't wait to get back on gun. A third of the team to a half of the team quit because they didn't want him having a, like a gun behind them because they thought he was a loose cannon. And then he took a transfer out to Albuquerque where he became the top firearms instructor. That's all he does is full-time firearms instruction and lead SWAT raids on other people. There is no sense that that person, you know, a, a thinking person would have stepped away and been like, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I almost took an innocent person's life. Maybe I should take a deep breath and take a knee and hydrate and see what comes next. Step away for a little bit. See if this is still the right thing. Pray about it, whatever. Um, that was not the case. No, no self-reflection, full psychopathy pressed forward. And that's the people that run the FBI or people that have been compromised in some way like that. You know, he's always going to do what they tell him now because they have a shooting over his head that he shouldn't have made it away from. So he's always going to be loyal to them for that. Oh, 100%. And, and there's more, and there's many examples of this kind of thing. Um, sexual impropriety, sexual abuse, you know, sleeping with a coworker, um, you know, sexually abusing a coworker, sexual harassment, so on. You're compromised. 
So why wouldn't we keep it right there? (laughs) Well, that's, and that's how you keep people that are in the management structure that are loyal. The woman who actually removed me, credible information from one of the most trustworthy and really like right up, like probably one of the coolest FBI agents that I ever met. I want to say his name because he's still working there, but just a really cool, cool, neat dude. He did work all overseas. He like, I'd be like, what stand are you in right now? You know, he was running an overseas source network in Afghanistan that was bringing in more intelligence on foreign threats than anybody domestically in any other intelligence agency. Just a really neat dude because people like him. They trust him. He travels well, et cetera. But um, he told me that the woman who took my security clearance would come into the office drunk during the entire COVID shutdowns, drinking white wine, and then would start petting women, you know, petting their hair and talking about how pretty they are. Did you ever see uh, Billy Madison with uh, Adam Sandler? Yeah, it's been a long time. But yeah. Okay. You remember the kindergarten teacher though? She puts uh, they, like glue, yeah, she puts yeah. glue on her face. <laughs> he he comes in during recess and she's putting glue on her face. That's essentially who this woman is. Her name's Jennifer Moore, and uh, you know she's like a just a goof, but she's compromised and potentially an alcoholic or you know a, like a at work drunk. And so those kind of people are great. And she was the executive assistant director of the human resources branch. She ran human resources training and the security clearances for every FBI agent. And I don't even think she should have qualified for an you know for a clearance. She's going to get to retire June, June 2nd. She's going to retire with a full pension and um, she's going to be fine because that's how it works. So compromised people are able to stick around. Uh, you know, they always say screw up, move up. That's pretty standard. The Peter principle it's ongoing. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's funny. People like wonder like why people are so conspiratorial or think maybe this happened or that happened. It's like, well, one, I guess if you even look into these things, once you understand the things that have just are just fact at this point, you know, declassified things. And then when you understand the methods and practices of the individuals, like, you know, you brought up these people being, uh, you know, compromised. But then you also just think of just on the basic level, how informants operate, that you have the carrot on one side where you'd be like, hey, uh, yep. you want to make six figures and get get us a uh, get us a uh, not an acquittal, but a, a conviction. And then or do you or on the opposite side? Hey, we look at uh, it looks like you may have diddled some kids in the past. We could erase this off your record or, oh, it would be nice if this felony went away. Wouldn't it be nice if you could own a gun again? Stuff like and it's like the. And now you extrapolate this con- this concept out, you know, and and you know, think about how uh, things can be shifted around, or things can be made to work a certain way you want them to, or how lies could be formed, and it becomes very obvious how these things work. And so uh, this kind of ties into a final question I do want to ask you, and this and this comes back again, once again, to the Oklahoma City bombing. So bear with me. Once again, I'm not ex- asking you to accept any of these things I'm saying, but one common um, one common theory amongst all of us, and, and I always try my best whenever I put up this theory to explain to people that this is a little bit more speculative. It's not as based on firm things, but there are there is merit and there are things to suggest this. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of us think that what happened, and I've alluded to this already, there's some sort of PATCON operation, which is essentially just infiltrating the right wing groups, you know, militias, white supremacists, whatever, kind of like a similar like the COINTELPRO thing. And what a lot of things, some people think happened, and I actually tend to somewhat agree with this thing, Once you, which sounds crazy, but once you start digging into it, and I'm not going to take the time here to uphold this case because it would take too long to be like, oh, this individual, that individual, this individual, this piece of evidence. But there is a lot to suggest, a lot of CIA connections to stuff going on here. And what a lot of people think is it may have been some sort of Northwoods Gladio Operation Phoenix type thing that may have happened and they think what a lot of people think is they inserted themselves into the PatCon operation 
kind of compromised it. And then when it went tits up, what happened is they put the FBI in a precarious situation to where now they're forced to do the cover up. Otherwise their hands, their hands are covered in blood as well. Um, so obviously this one's a little bit more conspiratorial. So most people don't assert this, but there are, there are people and certain facts out there that are heavily imply strong possibility. There are definitely some CIA individuals involved. Now, maybe it's just a matter of they went from one, were working as some sort of free agent for one entity and moved to another. I don't know. There might be different ways to explain it. But point being, have you seen operations where one, one um, agency will compromise another agency to their benefit? Because I've heard this has happened before with the CIA, will infiltrate certain FBI or other a- agency operations and essentially so that they get the thing they want in the end. Because if you were to do some sort of thing, I mean, that is pretty goddamn smart if you think about it. If you're another agency and you're like, well, we're going to need a cover-up at the end here. Well, why don't we kind of sort of take over some other person's operation and just bend it to our needs, and then we can just walk away with the mess we caused and let them deal with the fucking problems. Uh, does that sound like something that's semi-feasible or or have you seen th- other parallels that match up to similar things because i always thought that was kind of an interesting uh thing and once again i know it sounds crazy anyone who has no no it's, not, but, it's interesting so yeah. part of it is, that's really hard to say is that you know the fbi is two generations away yes. from the 19 you know 91 92 93 fbi and so to be able to speculate how they operated would be very difficult. I don't know anybody that was working like the, the most, the oldest old school uh, bureau agents that I worked with came in in maybe 96 or 97. So already post Oklahoma city. So to speculate on that culture. Now, if I'd worked in the Oklahoma city office, I might have some other ideas because you get historical for the area. There's some historical touch, you know, does the CIA operate domestically? Of course they do. Um, they have a group called National Resource, which many people don't know, but NR is out there. In fact, the FBI actually has a, a trading program. And this is why it's harder for me to speculate because we've actually kind of gotten involved with the agency in ways that people didn't used to do. Um, I have friends who gave up their badge for a period of service where they actually go, they go to the farm at Langley, they train to be case officers, and then they work domestically as FBI agents being paid by the FBI, but doing CIA case officer work domestically to recruit. And, and you know, look, the, the way that they're doing it, it's not nearly as uh, nefarious as it sounds. What they're doing is they're recruiting people to, to report on overseas threats. Let's say you travel to Uganda and you got a chicken company or something. And well, we're going to send you out there because you may know the president of Uganda and we want to know some stuff about what's going on in the, you know, in the, uh, the halls of power that we wouldn't otherwise be able to know as a, as a U.S. government. So they'll send people to do that. NGOs, people that are working for you know big corporations, traveling, oil companies, and stuff like that. So it's not that insidious. Um, it, it concerns people, and rightly so, but it's not as insidious as it could be. Uh, that being said, when they come back to the Bureau, then they have sort of like CIA-trained case officer experience. And so that's different than the way the FBI runs sources. And there are dedicated human intelligence squads inside the FBI that do that. They, they run around, they, you know, they just, they run professional sources to get information. So could that happen today? Probably less so because there's a lot of enmeshed sort of uh, operations. There's a lot of people that are bureau that have visibility to what goes on in the agency. There's a lot of personnel that go back and forth. Like I said, one of my, one of my favorite guys that uh, I worked in at the bureau with was a former agency guy and he was a maritime ops guy. Um, still moves boats around for SEAL Team 6 kind of thing, you know, still in the Navy Reserve. So there is a crossover that didn't used to happen. It used to be once you picked your agency, you were kind of there for life. 
way more possible when you're siloed like that. The siloing is 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 much less so now. So it's yeah, hard to speculate. A, in, there was it's, an individual named crazy Roger. To me. Yeah, there was an individual named Roger Moore. If you trace his back his backstory, it is one of those things where it's like you don't even know which side of the team he's like. Is he CIA? Is he FBI? Because there's definitely connections that may that show in the past CIA things he's helped with. But there's also stuff to where he's literally on record saying whatever they had me doing for the FBI was fucked up because they blew my cover. Uh, alluding to in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City, essentially with dealing with Oklahoma City bombing stuff, burnt his cover. And it's like, well, fuck, they know who I am now. So, but it's like, it, but at the same time, there's CIA and FBI stuff. So it was like, it is weird when you do start looking at these stories, trying to figure out who's doing what, how does this interact with that? It, it is get confusing to try to separate the different things and how this entity works with that entity. And, you know, like we already talked about the how the FBI and the ATF work together. Yep. You know, Everyone wants to immediately assume the ATF are the bad guys, but of the different federal agencies involved here, they actually look to be some probably the least culpable of the ones in this specific story. Oh, yeah, for that one. And in other ones, they're the worst. So, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, the ATF as, a, as an agency are kind of, you oh, know, yeah, I, 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 they're terrible. I mean, and, yeah. and the whole premise of it is that they were a tax agency. And then, you know, now. Oh, I wish now I could be- rail on the uh, ATF or OKC, but it's like, I mean, there's some things that imply foreknowledge, but aside from that, it's like, I don't know. That could no, they were the target, so it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, none of them were there that day, so of course not. Yeah, yeah. so there's always that. There's <laughs> just so, children. Which uh, I don't know. Whatever. There were different explanations, uh, but you know, it, it, the worst it looks like is they had some foreknowledge. But if anything, they actually look like they tried to stop it beforehand. I know it hurts me deep to the core uh, to want to not rail against the ATF as right. much here, but. You know, I mean, their whole entity is completely bullshit, but I'll, I'll let you go. I've kept you a little bit long here. I know you have a family to get back to. I do as well. If you could go ahead and drop your plugs, let people know who you are, where they can find you. Uh, you know, I know you have your show and you're doing other stuff. You were just, were on just, uh, there's a Jesse Kelly show you were just on. Yeah. Uh, I just did yeah. Jesse Kelly's show. I did, uh, I did Emerald Robinson. I do her show pretty frequently. I do Kim Iverson's on a regular basis. Um, I'm on Dan Bongino's podcast and radio on a, I used to actually only get my haircut when I knew I was doing Dan Bongino's uh, Fox show. That was kind of funny. Um, I, I show up on Fox, even though people hate about it, you know, there's an audience there, there's a message to be shared. And so I go where the audience is. Um, you can see right down here, you can see that's my handle that's on Twitter. That's on true social. You can find me on YouTube there, although I do less on that cause I'm afraid I'll get censored. Um, kind of saving that for shorts later. I'm on Rumble. It's uh, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Pretty much the same everywhere you go. And then you can go to kyleserafin.com as well. And you can find the podcast there if you don't want to download an app or, or you don't want anyone knowing you're listening because you'll end up on a watch list, which you probably will. I will say that my podcast is probably the most listened to podcast by the FBI Security Division from what we can tell. We have made things happen in a day when we do it. So the information we drop on there, oftentimes federal whistleblowers, oftentimes inside stories, um, they, they know and they listen. And so if you want to know what they know, that's how you find it. Uh, you can find us Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we stream live at 830 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. You, I, you have been known to fuck people's YouTube channels just by coming on them. Uh, that, you, I, I have heard this. <laughs> so uh, I'm bracing for the suck. We'll see how that goes. I'm surprised they haven't got me as bad. I've had a few strikes and stuff and had my issues, but still have my channel. Uh, but I don't know how, but uh, you know, you, you may be this, the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, I, I don't had know. Some poor guy that was doing like this Catholic podcast. We didn't do anything that was, you know, we just talked about, I don't know, Catholic church and being a good person and end of the day. And he hits me up afterwards. He's like, they pulled my whole channel. And it's like, it's just gone. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey, you take a risk, I guess. Like he only had about 25 subscribers. So I didn't feel terrible about it. And I, <laughs> you know, I knew one. <laughs> here's the thing. I've done podcasts that have two dozen subscribers 
to them. And I've done podcasts that have a couple of million and, you know, and for me, it's all the same. It's just talking to people, sharing, sharing a story, sharing a conversation. And if people want to hear what I have to say, then I'm, I'll go talk to them. That's usually, unless they're totally out of their minds. And there's certainly some of those out there in the world, which, you know, Yep. Uh, well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, just to remind people, uh, just in case this does get nuked, you can find me other places other than YouTube. Uh, you can find me in all the major audio podcatchers. Odyssey as well. I need to make a Rumble one. I'm too lazy. I'm a tech. I'm uh, I'm very apprehensive when it comes to tech or new tech in general. So I need to get around and make a new Rumble. I'll do it. Get Rumble. At least they won't cancel you. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, I guess worst case scenario, you got me on Odyssey. You also got me in all the audio podcatchers. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you do want to support my content, patreon.com, snowwaysa2020. You can follow me on Twitter, at TowerGangJose. Uh, and yeah, that's all I got. Go buy those Yiki shirts. Go check out my uh, my article or my piece in the in that uh, new magazine. I appreciate you. I'll definitely have to... I really could have done another couple hours. It's like, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's, always, so there's always more material. Yeah, yeah but uh, no, I appreciate you coming. Uh, we'll have to do something again sometime, maybe like a Four Pony Boys or something. But I uh, appreciate your time. With that, yeah. we are out. Sounds good. And broadcast.